Okay, so I'm here with Ariel Winter, who's most recently the author of The 20-Year Death. Ariel, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, now, we were talking beforehand. I was curious what you did, and you said, well, I'm not going to tell you, Ed. I'm going to tell it to you on air. I was curious about what your life that is not a writer uh, what is that like? What is it that you do? What is your day job? At all? Right. Well, my day job is I'm a sta- I'm the primary caregiver to my daughter. Oh, okay. Um, it was always the plan that when we had kids, I would stay home. Uh, and so that is what I've done since she was born. Uh-huh. Which is she's four. She just turned four. So uh, that's more than a day job. <laughs> Taking care is. is is really a 24-7 job. But it does allow you time to write three novels. <laughs> well, so the only way that that was able to happen was we hired uh, somebody, a college girl, to come in three hours a day, five days a week. And I, I would I would sneak out, go to the library, and write during oh, really? that time. So you had to arrange daycare to ensure that you could get progress and yes. momentum in the book. Yes, wow. yeah. because it's different when I, you know, when I people I've talk worked, about that too. Well, I've worked full time jobs and written books, and it's it's believe it or not, as hard as it is to come home after working an eight hour day and then go and and sit and write, it's it's doable. Where spending uh, ten hours with uh, two year olds. You can't then sit and write once she goes to bed. Like yeah. it's, it's not even a quick sentence or it's anything. Exa- it's too exhausting. Yeah, I, I was talking with Susan Strait, and she said that she would always find time to write. Like when she was driving in her car, she scribbles down like you know whatever sentences she can for that day, just to get some kind of momentum. And then there's the Sturdo Dan thing where, well, he writes like a page, 250 words a day, and that's it. That's all he can. Add. But in his case, it takes the whole day. So right. for you, has the uh, that three-hour need to get something going. I mean, how many, what do you generally push forward uh, on in terms of pages and words and that's and so forth? Right. So, so I did, when I'm when things are going really well, I can write up to four hours a day. But I never I never write more than four hours usually. So three hours works really well. Uh, I am able usually like in that first hour, it might take me a, a little bit to get going. I might only write a page in that first hour, and then I can in that second hour I could potentially write you know six pages. Yeah. Um, once I once I've like gotten started. Yeah. Uh, but so my goal is usually to to write at least two hours, or if I have a ridiculous day, 10 pages. Like, I try to do one or the other, whichever comes first. Rarely do I write 10 pages in less than two hours, but but those are my sort of goals. This, le- this leads me to ask if you actually adopted any techniques to write not only in the style of Simonon, Chandler, and Thompson, but also to perhaps write the exact same way that they did. Right. I mean, I did notice that the years that these three separate novels were set matched roughly around the type of writing that, that Simonon, Chandler, and Thompson were doing at the time. So um, as a way of offering a general question about why you need to do pastiche over, say, an original voice, maybe you could talk about this a little bit. Right. Um, well, to answer the initial part of your conversation yeah. question, um, it's not like I didn't try to like drink a whole lot if, or smoke cigars. I, I, I figured or... that was impossible with a two-year-old at <laughs> home. Although it hasn't prevented other people from trying. Right. <laughs> so um, I didn't adopt that part. And then also, you know, Simeon, he wrote he wrote his novels in usually 11 days. Yeah. You know. You didn't have 11 I'm years. not that fast. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, I write fast when I'm writing, but not a novel in 11 days. Yeah. So, you know, so I definitely wasn't able to, to do that. The, the reason that I ended up writing in those voices was quite simply, initially, was I was just reading a lot of Simeon at the time. And originally I was writing, the book that I had set out to write was going to be a book in which there was a reader reading a number of different books, and each of the books the reader read, we would see in full. Yeah. So there would be a, like this frame narrator, this first person reader, who then we would see what he had read. And the first one I wrote was the Simeon uh, pastiche. Then as I worked on that book more and I started to feel like it wasn't working, I wanted to hold on to Mount of a Prism, which is the, the Simeon book in the 20-year death. And so as I started to think about expanding it and what I might want to do, that's when I came up with the idea of what would a mystery series look like if it wasn't the detective that we saw from Books of Book but one of the secondary characters. Yeah. So since I had already written one in the voice of an author, it followed that I wanted to do the other two in the voice of different authors. And part of that was dictated just about the just by the way that the main character, Shem Rosencrantz's life would have progressed. You know, he was loosely based on a Fitzgerald kind yes. of character. Police so, the Funeral is a title that is right. in You're the, the first person to, yeah. to pick that up. Yeah. But yes, that was, that was purposeful. And what's really interesting is that I didn't write the book with that in mind. So the scene, the scene where there is act, where there are actually police in the funeral. Yeah, I wrote that without realizing that was a Fitzgerald the title. Subconscious, an amazing thing. And then when we were talking, that was not my original title for the book. And Charles, my editor, really did not think that my original title worked. And so we talked about lots of different things. And so I decided, oh well, let me go look at Fitzgerald's titles. And then that <laughs> title was there, and there was a scene in the book where there were police at a funeral. And I was like. Well, that's clearly going to be the title. Well, and also, Clotheild, near the end, has a sort of Zelda-like existence, um, without giving too much away. Um, how closely did you adhere to Fitzgerald's life? How did it serve as inspiration? I know Fitzgerald did, in fact, go to France right, right before writing The Great Gatsby. Right. Um, but in this case, well, this isn't exactly... He isn't exactly that hot shit of a writer. <laughs> right. So... Where did you stray from Fitzgerald, and, and how closely did you cleave to him sometimes? Well, the, the only aspects I really kept were the places, in part, because he spent time in France, and he spent time in Hollywood, and he spent time in Baltimore. So as a Baltimore writer, you know, Fitzgerald is very important to me because he's so, he spends so much time there, and he is closely you know, attached to the city. So... Those three locales, although I re reversed, you know, he was in Baltimore in the middle, like sort of in the mi middle of his life, and then he was, uh, he died in Hollywood, and I sort of have reversed that. Yeah. But um, the only other thing uh, being that he has a wife who does end up having mental problems. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I mean, obviously, like, Fitzgerald didn't have a first wife with yeah. another child, you know, and, and he didn't, as far as I know, write, uh, you know, questionable books under other names. and The pornography that right. we see in the second one. Right. Yeah. So all of that I made up. I mean, the character is definitely a made-up character. Yeah. But it drew inspiration from, from Fitzgerald. But 
there are no second acts in American life, as we learn in the second and the third book. Right. Um, was Rosencrantz doomed to failure from the get-go uh, when you devised these other two books? And, and what, so, what also, by the way, you know, I was curious why you postponed writing in the first person for that third book. Um, you know, was it a matter of pr- approaching Rosencrantz from uh, a number of different angles before you felt comfortable about comfortable about writing him directly? Uh, you know, wh- why why did why why did you defer on the first person? It wasn't that. It wasn't that I I had to get used used to the character. Part of it was dictated by the authors I was emulating. Yeah. You know, so Simeon writes in third person. So that that book is in third person, and then Chandler writes in first person, but it's the detective, which is what how I did it as well. And then Thompson writes in first person, but it, it's uh, well, I mean, he's written in first and third, but he he's written a lot of his best known books in first person, and it's in the voice of the criminal usually. Yeah. Um, so that's that's why I chose the different perspectives for each one. I, to answer sort of, I think something you were starting to ask, the once I conceived of book two and three, once I had this idea about there being a series with a character, and I picked uh, Shema as the character that I was going to do that with, then I did have the larger idea of two and three together, in that I didn't know how it would end. But again, part of that is dictated by Thompson. I mean, people who really know Thompson, a lot of his books have a similar end. Yes. And so that was sort of built in. And I think that it was natural. It was a natural way for the character to go yes. as well. It just fit right. Well, I'm going to give you an extremely wonkish example of Thompson. Um, the last book, you have Rosenclantz declare, I was one poor bastard. Um, he remarks upon his lack of education, the fact that he's an alcoholic. Now, this is a very interesting irony for me. I'm familiar with Jim Thompson, uh, and there's the hero of Thompson's early novel, The Alcoholic, 1955, roughly around the same time, describes a guy named Jake, the poor bastard was kind of like me. And in the next paragraph, the poor bastard, no looks, no education, no nothing, and he pulled himself up to the top, and now he was back on the bottom again. Hmm, doesn't that sound a little familiar? I, the interesting thing is, is, I'm wondering if the idea with the Thompson novel was to fuse some of these peripheral characters that Thompson's first-person characters were observing and actually turn them into qualities for uh, Rosencrantz. Was, was, this, was this kind of what you were doing with the pastiches? Um, so, j- just to start, I have not read that one, so... Oh. <laughs> I'm, I guess Again, it, magical it, serendipity it suggests yeah. that I <laughs> that I guess I nailed you know his his voice well. Um, no, I, I I think that like I said, Rosencrantz just sort of he naturally became the character he he was in part because his life just his life flowed in in. It, you know, it made sense for an American author in France to end up in Hollywood and for his career to fall apart. You know, that all made sense. So I think that that just came about naturally. Yeah. Um, and then it was only accentuated by the fact that, you know, a Thompson narrator has a certain sound. But the fact is, is that as, as much as Thompson can be 
reduced to that particular sound. The reality is that a lot of his narrators are different. There are there are different uh, aspects to them. It's sure. not it's not the same character. You know, even in his biggest books, from uh, you know the Killer and Simon to Pop Twelve Eighty, that like even though those are both lawmen and and are both crazy and fr- they're very different people. Yeah. And in some of his other books, like The Criminal, if I remember, that's the one. It's in many first persons. Yes. We see it in many first persons. So, you know, I think that um, that allowed me to write my own character with a Thompson feel to it. Sure. Well, did you take specific phrases from these three writers and try to rejig them when you were creating these pastiches, to what extent did language dictate the motivations of third person the first, of course, and, right. and the two first person ones for the for the Chandler and the Thompson? Right. The short answer is is no, I did not. Um, nothing, I mean, it sounds like I happen to have written a very similar well, sentence Poor there. bastard is something you find <laughs> a lot of Thompson books. But, right. <laughs> but I, uh, the only, the only things that were, they were, verbal that I adopted verbally were just little things like the way that Chandler calls elevators automatic elevators or Jim Thompson when he has someone say so he'll have someone say ah five ten minutes or five ten bucks you know and he does it as a hyphen it'll be like five ten um with a so I I have that I do that once uh, there, so there are little things like that. Punctuation was more of a muse than the language. Right. So, uh, right. It was sort of the tone more than the actual specifics of the words. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the way that I went about it was I would read a, a paragraph, you know, never, never more than a page, but sometimes as much as a page before I would start writing to get the sort of voice in my head. Yeah. But then I wrote myself you know and I just tried to make sure that in my head at least it still sounded the same so so when did you know when to stray from that was there always the guide of the page of the writer and you in the shadow of that writer or were there some days where you basically said ah you know what Raymond I got this (laughs) yeah I would say that like I said I would always I'd get the the voice in my head but then I would try to write it myself the and then as I rewrote when I got later in, I wouldn't refer to their books at all, so that in the rewrites I w- the voice in my head was m- my version of their voice. So like I'd read a paragraph of my own version and try to stay consistent with that, rather than refer back to the originals. Uh, so that because I did want it to be mine, e- yeah. Even though I also wanted it to read almost like a lost book of each of these authors. I wanted to also ask you about, also, Malnivo Prison. Uh, it's similar to Simonon's The Yellow Dog. Uh, the year, as I suggested earlier, corresponding to the writing style. Um, how much was, was the year more of a guide than this process of reading them and, and reacting to it? Um, you know, what duty did you have to, I suppose, chronological accuracy and chronological mimesis. Unlike the Chandler and the Thompsons where I wouldn't say there's as specific a book that was as influential, 
The Yellow Dog was probably the most influential book on Malmeville Prison. Yeah. I, I had read many other Simeon books that I also would refer to and look at, but I definitely drew heavily on The Yellow Dog. And with Simeon, more than the other two authors, he had a very long career. Yeah. You know, so it's not as... You know, like with Chandler, it's the 40s. Like, there's no question because, yes, he wrote short stories in the 30s, but really all the novels are in the 40s and that's it. And similarly with Thompson, his novels were all written in a very short period of a few years in the 50s. With Simeon, you have to pick an era yeah. because he wrote for 70 years or whatever it was, 60 years. And he... So, so because The Yellow Dog was written in 1931, that is why I ended up in 1931. Yeah. Um, so, but... So then I wanted it to be historically accurate in terms of, of like, the that they were actually set in those time periods. But the way that I maintained that was by usually re- referring to the book, the author's books themselves. Yeah. You know, so if Simeon mentions this kind of thing, or, or you know, then I know that it's correct time-wise. Yes. <laughs> um, and then, of course, I have general ideas about things that would be incorrect for the time. Um, so, and I sort of did the same thing with the other two books also, where my major research into each period of time was the, the novels themselves. So there were really no outside texts consulted for these, these research? Or? Yeah, for the most part, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, I'm trying to think if there's any time that that isn't true. Well, was there any time when you were stuck when like, oh, you know, I don't quite have this year right, or I really don't know what the hell I'm doing, or were the foundational texts of these three godfathers enough for you to lay it all down? For the most part, yes. There would be little things that I'd want to make sure, you know, like like with the World War II, you know, how that was necessarily affecting. Because one thing that's interesting about Chandler, and it's apparent in the, really apparent in the movies also, from the 40s, is that the references to the war are are almost not references. They're just like you know, like the there's a gas rationing sticker on the car in that Humphrey Bogart's driving. Like that's not communicated to the audience. That's just that was just life at yeah. the time. So there'd be little things like that that I would try to to get, and sometimes I would have to check, you know, just like on Wikipedia or something to that effect. Yeah. Uh, but for the most part, I I did just rely on the novelists by themselves. Yes. Well, I actually also have to ask you about one curious commonality to the trilogy. You have, of course, newspapermen prevalent in all three. In the first one, we have this hectoring newspaper man from this weekly outfit called the Verite. Um, and uh, he's pestering Pelletier uh, throughout the entirety of that book. Uh, then you have Foster. He calls the Chronicle reporter to get him interested in the story. Uh, then... In the last one, Rosencrantz, well, he plants that story to the uh, to, to the guy in police at the, at the funeral. So I'm curious, why? And, and by the way, that's it's interesting that you would have the sort of communication to the newspaper man in the last two. Why did newspaper men matter so much in these three uh, novels to keep the momentum of the plot pu- pushing forward? Right. Um, you know. Maybe it might be curious from the vantage point of 2012 as newspapers continue to dissolve and fold and, and, and become understaffed, but 
it is very interesting that you chose newspaper men in, in all three instances rather than say a, a policeman or something along those lines. Right. You know, it wasn't it wasn't conscious that that wasn't conscious. Uh, so part of it was it was dictated by the story. You know, like in the second book in particular, private detectives tend to have relationships with a police officer and or reporters yeah. because they're, they all have access to different outlets of information that would be mutually beneficial for them to communicate. So, uh, you know, that's I think just the only reason it happened in book two was that he needed somebody he could call. Um, in book and in book one, part of it I think is that he provides the, the newspaper men provides sort of a safe antagonist. Yeah. In a lot of ways, you know, it's he he's not the bad guy, you know, or the good guy, even. or the good guy. He's just an antagonist in in that he wants to get the story and is sort of in the way. Yes. Um, so, I, you know, I think that's how that came about. And then in the third book, I guess maybe the only reason I went with a, a reporter in the third book was that I wanted... He, the reporter in the third book is, is like a surrogate son. You know, he's a stand-in for, the son, for a son in a lot of ways. And so it made sense that a writer would look up to this much older writer. Yeah. And that a reporter would have access to the information about like where the writer would be or how how to get you know why the writer was coming into town and where he would be and those yeah. kinds of things that like he was able to use his newspaper contacts kind of to meet his hero yeah um, but on so. the on the other hand for that particular thread the furies this play that uh, that he dictates to this kid Montgomery, that the ball there is kind of dropped. But it is interesting because that you choose the Furies because there's actually an Anthony Mann movie called The Furies that came out the year before that. Really, uh, that yeah, I didn't yeah. know. Either. Oh, okay. Well, again, happy, happy the, coincidence. But but I, you you kind of drop the ball in that whole thing. Is the guy going to actually steal the story and make his own kind of new life? Is there some sort of like? Cycle of regurgitated creativity that we're talking about here. Uh, why didn't you pursue the, the the continuation of this mysterious Furies play? The you know, he's he's feeling like hopped up. He's feeling inspired again. Of course, he's also drinking again. But hey, you know, there's some progress in right, right. in some sense. I think that well, the reason I went with the Furies to answer that part of the question yes. is that the the Furies in Greek tragedy were those that punish people who kill members of their own family. So that was meant as a very heavy-handed, you know, sort of obvious symbol. You would say. love this Barbara Stanwyck movie. <laughs> and um, so that's why I did that. And I think that, you know, at the end of the book, it's made clear that he is giving it to... To Montgomery, like he's passing it. He's sort of passing on the the torch, kind of. Um, this is his identity, and this is the only kind of son that he really has. Right. Yeah. Right. Because you know he's left feeling like not only does he not get that from his own son, but that the world in general that you know here's suddenly a fan. Yep. You know, there doesn't there don't seem to be fans anymore. Yes. So I think that it helps him feel vindicated. 
in 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 finding this young and that he's young also yeah. that there's a there's a new fan who's a young fan sure is really important to him and so you know the I think the idea is that if if he does um, continue the play you know after if if Montgomery does com- continue the play that there's some salvation in that yeah. I think is the idea um, when Fitzgerald was in Baltimore he did you know Fitzgerald wrote a play he had one play that was not well received yeah and then he when he was in Baltimore he did work if I remember correctly he did work with was it a playwright or was it a newspaper man? I think I, I think he I worked with somebody. I was it a newspaper man? It might have been a newspaper man. So yeah. that I might have taken from that. I vaguely am remembering now. So, yeah. Well, while we're on the subject of fatherhood in that third book, um, I do feel compelled to point out, without revealing anything, that um, the the death count in that third book in tribute to Thompson is, of course, higher. Unless, of course, you count the bodies in the first one. But right, it's right. significantly more uh, known to the reader right. than the other two books. But at the same time, there is one death that is so comical in a certain way that I feel that it doesn't quite have the, the, the intensity of a Thompson kind of, kind of death. Yet, it also works in the context of, of Rosencrantz's story. Um, this seems a, a time to talk with you about tone. I mean, you know, at what point in mimicking Thompson's brutality did you sort of say to yourself, you know what, I'm going to have a lot of fun with this particular death because it's so utterly absurd. Um, and, and the reader probably needs something light at this point, even though it's also deadly and has serious ramifications on Rosencrantz's life. I'm cu- I was curious about about, you know, if you take the bones of, of Thompson, do you not take the tone in, in this case or right. other cases? Or? Um, well, I would argue that there are comical deaths in Thompson. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to start, I, I love the one, I think it's Murder My Sweet, the one where they killed all a woman by throwing her down the stairs. Oh, that's true, yeah. Yeah, so I think that that one was in my mind to some extent because that one is definitely farcical. Yeah. Um, but... I think that I didn't worry too much about it as I was doing. You know, I was like I said, I was trying to get the tone correct, and I also was trying to get the way that a narrative is built correctly because they each have different uh, ways of telling a story. Yeah. But then I was still telling the story, my story, and so as you know, I need I needed that death to come about the way that it did. Yes. Uh, because so for all the motivations to be correct. So that was dictated by my story, I think, and I wasn't so concerned. One of the things that's interesting or that I like about Thompson is that there's, n- there's nothing that any of his criminals do that are their fault. Yeah. You know, it's never their fault. Yeah. And so I think that that was what I tried to hold on to, whether regardless of how much of his fault it is yeah. at each step of the way. Yes. Um, so I think that that... Does that answer? Or? It, it, it sort of does. Maybe another way to also phrase this is to also take a look at The Falling Star, the second one, the Chandler one, mm-hmm. where 
again, Foster at almost every step of the way is confused for some suspicious cop. There's the man at the house. There's the man at the club. Um, everybody cannot trust Foster. Right. And, and it becomes almost a sort of like over-the-top rift to, to, a, to a slight degree on what you see in Chandler with Marlowe, where Marlowe goes around and, and he's also, you know, he's greatly suspicious, but, but, but Foster, it's like one more than Marlowe, I, I would argue. So, you know, in taking an idea or a sensibility or uh, a feeling that a character feels, um, of course, or taking a feeling from these original writers, you know, did you want to just exaggerate it slightly so it became yours? Is that sort of I don't think so. I think yep. that... I think that, if anything, that's probably where I wasn't nailing it as well as I might have wanted yeah. to be. Um, Chandler was the most difficult of the three. Yes, he was. And that was the one that Charles Miter worked on the most. Uh, part of that is because, first of all, it's just really hard to do Chandler. Yeah. Uh, it's hard for anybody to do Chandler. And then there's, there's been lots of people who have tried to do Chandler, and a lot of people have done it very badly, and some, very few, good to have done Jeter. it all. I did. I just saw that. Yeah, I yeah. did see that. I have, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> I have mixed feelings um, uh, about that. But um, the so, so it is challenging because, first of all, a lot of people bring a certain expectation to it, but... There's also, like, the expectation they bring is that you're not going to do a good job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that some of the reviews have sort of shown that, that some people are more forgiving than others when it comes to Chandler because people feel more passionately about it. Why, why, why should you apologize to these writers as you did at the beginning of the three So books? I took that, right. Yeah. I took that from, um, from poetry, I just remember, I can't name any specific poems anymore, but I just remember in college taking poetry classes and we would often read poems that were almost meant to be a dialogue where one poet would write to another poet and then that poet would reply. And a a lot of those poets, to to indicate that their poem is either intended for or based off of another poem, would say an apology to... Whoever that poet was, so that's what I took it for, for from, um, and I felt like it was accurate because, yes. for the same reason that they used the poets used it, which is I'm taking a tremendous amount from the authors. I'm not going to do the, them as well as they do, and so there's an apology owed. That, you know, forgive me for presuming yes. to to do something as well as you did, uh, but I tried anyway. (laughs) Interesting because, of course, Marlowe was very much into poetry and chess, and yet Foster was not. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, did you feel that you had to kind of detract a lot from Marlowe and not explore the whole chess? Right, the chess thing thing? I think is overdone. I think that is one that you see overdone. So I I definitely was consciously did not want to have chess references. You could have given them checkers, though. Or you know, that, right, or or bridge like it's probably <laughs> yeah. it would have been because then you could still have bridge puzzles laid yeah, out yeah, yeah. in a way that you wouldn't with with checkers, but um, but yeah, I just feel like that 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 is really done. So so I didn't go in that direction. Um, I also think that at that point, 
while Foster is the main character is meant to be the main character, at yeah. that point I was also consciously writing with the Rosencrantzes as supposed to be as important. Yeah. Um, so I think for some, in, to some, in some respects, it was because I was focused on them yeah. also. And that was what also created this difficulty of pastiching on Chandler. Right, so there's nothing... Um, yeah. I mean, the closest you get is the writer in The Long Goodbye yeah. is something similar. That's a very different writer who has a very different attitude about life. Um, but, right, so in, in some ways it, needed, it still needed to serve my purposes and not always... I mean, I wanted the book to be... to read as though it was something Chandler could have written, but at the same time, like, it's not a book that Chandler would have written. Yes. Um, so I think that it's in those places that I deviated because the, the Rosencrantz required me to. Yeah. How much of the consistency of the pastiches was maintained through the first draft or needed to be really honed through editing? I mean, it would seem right. to me that if you're creating some kind of a forgery... Well, you'd have to examine the details very carefully through editing. Or were there aspects of writing these this trilogy right. where you didn't even need that? It just kind of flowed in this continuous tap right, that right. you had for these three-hour sessions. So, um, so book one changed the most from when I first wrote it because, as I said, I had originally written it as part of another book. And most of Simeon's books tend to be short. They tend to be like 130 pages, sometimes 200, but never more than 200 pages. So when I wrote the rough draft of Mount Nouveau Prison, it was 130 pages. And it ends the way that early Maigret books end, which is with a traditional, everybody cuts brought together in the room and then the detective explains it all to, to everyone, um, which is something that, that Simeon did as everyone did at that yeah. time. So that was my original draft ended in that way because I was staying even closer. Then once I broke it out of the other book and decided I wanted to extend it, eliminate that and actually like have a, a more exciting ending. Uh, there the balance was then difficult because the ending that I wrote the and a lot of the things that I added are not the kinds of things that Simeon would have had in a Maigret book yeah um he some of them he would have had in one of the romandeur um books but not in a maigret book so there it was harder to maintain the voice i would say because because i was deviating from it more than i do in the in the second two books yes the, the Chandler was the one that the most work was done on after I sold it. So Charles had very little to change in book one and three. In book three, basically nothing. Yeah. Um, book three is pretty much published as he bought it. Like, I didn't really change anything. Book two was the one that he was most concerned about because of the Chandler so hard to do well and has so, so easy to do badly. Yes. Um, and so he, uh, you know, Charles is um, such an expert in the genre, and he, I really trusted his ability to say, well, here you're going over to parody, or here this is uh, too cliche. 
you know, that kind of thing. So in some respects, some of the things that might have felt very cliche, he was the one to help cut those things out. Yeah. Um, so to answer your original question, in book one and three, very little changed um, at once I established this format. Um, and book two, the, the most changed uh, in order to feel like Chandler without feeling like a joke. Since the majority of hard case crime authors are dead, uh, this seems a good opportunity to ask how Charles is as an editor. Often, the people who he edits don't have the obligate, don't have the advantage of being alive to right. respond to his edits. So, you know, what was he like as an editor? Was he like a hard line editor? Was he uh, a more of a sequential editor? Was he more of a Here's, here are my thoughts. Here's an editorial letter editor. So the way, so the, the very beginning, he gave me some broad ideas. We had a meeting, and he gave me some broad ideas. And I, I made some changes based on those broad ideas. And then he went more specifically, you know, used track changes and really uh, pointed out things, made suggestions, uh, sometimes maybe suggested actual changes or or just pointed out things that I should look at and um, you know and then I went through the track changes and I would uh, respond or make changes based on or or accept changes um, how many times did you stat him how many times did I, I'm sorry how many times did you stat him um, <clears throat> I did, but I also really trusted him and yeah. took a lot of his... He, he never made a comment that was, didn't have grounds. You know, there would be times where I'd be like, no, this is going to stay. But for the most part, I mean, he was accurate <laughs> in all of his things. There, there were a couple arguments we had. There was a scene where I had Foster pull a gun... And then he doesn't end up getting a chance to use it. Yeah. We went back and forth a lot about that, where I felt that was okay, and he was like, "You can't have the gun in this scene at all." Yeah. Um, you know, so setting check off, no doubt. <laughs> so we right. So we, you know, in the end, I I adopted his position. Yeah. Um, and you know, he's probably right <laughs> in most of those. Um, so yeah, no, he was, but he was great. I mean, he he has a way of he has a really good way of pointing out things without telling you this is how to fix them, it, which is the right balance. Like getting broad suggestions is often not very helpful, and being basically dictated to is not particularly helpful either. You know, he he does what a good editor does of pointing things out and maybe offering suggestions. Um, you know, and there's always that tone of, well, you could try this, but or maybe something else. You know, just that there needs to be something done here. Um, so he did, he did that very well, and I think that, I mean, it was he was a good good editor to work with. I feel. Um, I think that I mean, it'd be interesting to ask him. Like I know he has the James M. Kane book coming out yes. later this year, and I'd be interesting to ask him what it's like to have to work on somebody like Kane without being able to consult Kane. Yeah. Because um, I feel like that would be just as difficult. <laughs> as a matter of fact, before we talked, I was asking him that. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, whether he'll go on the record is, uh, who knows. <laughs> um, but but actually, you know, this leads me to ask you, um, do you think that working in genre or working in pastiche offers certain 
advantages that say your original voice doesn't have or so I guess I would say no um, so well there are two things I want to say about that the, the first is that the sort of modernist aspect of the book is to is that we see a character from three different vantages and they're very different depictions of the same character and so part of what using the genre to do that gave me was the ability to use a lens that most people are very familiar with and have familiar uh, expectations with to try to get at a different facet of a character so I mean the way to what I'm trying to say the way to think of it is you know how would you describe you know your wife and how would Chandler have described your wife kind of thing and so it's sort of that's what I'm trying to do it's like well we all have we all kind of have in our head this Chandler voice where like we could try to think how he might have described our wives yeah uh, so by using a voice like that where we do have this sort of preconceived notion of it and then, and then taking a character that feels like okay this now feels like a Chandler character but then seeing him as a Thompson character and seeing him as a Simonian character gives you uh, it makes you think I think to some degree about what the characters in the original books are like as real people. Yeah, I don't know if I'm explaining that as clearly as I no, want no, no. to be. I, I think I, what I, I'm get, trying to say yeah, is that a character, a character that that Marlowe encounters is a very specific type, but they are supposed to be people. They're supposed to represent people, but yeah. nobody meets the people in real life that Marlowe meets in the books. So the idea is well how would you translate them you know it's it's like when they it's like when people try to take uh, you know two dimensional cartoon characters and then render them in CGI through yeah. 3D CGI like how would they look in reality kind of thing it's sort of the same thing it's like well we know there, where the the disconnect is between the way Chandler describes a person and what a person is actually like and we know the disconnect between how Thompson describes a character and what a character is, a human is really like. Sure. And and the same with Simeon. So by seeing the, the their disconnects all fo focus around the person who's supposed to be the same individual. Yeah. It gives us a chance to to draw a fuller picture of a real person in our minds sure. for that character. Does that does that does that make sense? I'm not sure if I answered your question. No, 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 no. but, but, that but it is. does it does it does sort of get at it. And of course, you can't meet those people either. Right. No. Yeah, so of course. So of at course. what point does it even matter if you're forming them from a, what a person has told you, from what a person has told you, from what a person told, right. told you? It's the ultimate game of Chinese telephone through pastiche. Right. Correct. Yes. <laughs> <Okay>. Exactly. <laughs> I think I think that's a good note to end on. <laughs> Ariel, thanks so much. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you. Fantastic.